Welcome to Performance and Health. Performance and Health is a product of a mechanical engineer with a passion for human physiology and its relation to athletic performance and longevity. Although at the pointy end of things, these two goals clash with one another, there are still many similarities between the two and much to be learned from studying both of them. Athletes, both amateur and professional, must focus on their longevity to have a long career and be successful throughout it without compromising their ability to function well into later life. And someone looking to maximize their lifespan and health span must focus on their cardiovascular health and physical strength if they are to live a long and mobile life. If you are a regular listener and have not done so yet, please be sure to leave the podcast a rating and share it amongst your friends. And if you are new, well then, enjoy your first episode, which I hope to be the first of many for you. And with that, let's get into today's episode. Welcome back to this episode where I will be looking into the performance enhancing effects of caffeine. I'm not sure what kind of order I'm going to release these in, so I may already have um, an episode out on the health benefits and whether it's good or bad for you. Uh, But if I haven't, that is yet to come. But this uh, episode is likely to be quite lengthy and is likely to be a two-part because the performance enhancing effects of caffeine are extremely interesting and there is a lot of information on it that has resulted in this write-up of this episode being incredibly long. So coffee itself is one of the most popular uh, and most widely consumed beverages worldwide due to its stimulating effects on the central nervous system and its taste and aroma for coffee buffs like myself who like it for more than just the stimulating effects that it presents itself with. In 2016 alone, the production of raw coffee amounted to about 9.1 billion kilograms of coffee. And it's estimated that 2.25 billion cups of coffee are consumed each day worldwide. Uh, Coffee is a complex mixture of more than 800 volatile compounds where caffeine and chlorogenic acids are most common compounds found. Caffeine does not have to be consumed via coffee and is, in sports, often consumed via powders, tablets and gels, including uh, caffeine gum as well. So, what is this episode, for those that want to know, going to actually contain? Now, the main things I'm going to cover are uh, doping and, well, I say doping. I'm using it a bit tongue-in-cheek, but how, uh, what the actual effects of it are and how can we tell from a very high level that coffee and caffeine probably have performance-enhancing effects, uh, how caffeine, uh, caffeine works and the, the uh, main uh, method in which it acts upon the body, um, the key methods of action specific to sports performance and what those uh, are, uh, the best ways to take caffeine and like the alternative methods that can be used for consuming caffeine. Uh, caffeine specific to endurance sports, uh, caffeine specific to muscular uh, endurance, strength and power. Uh, what causes the variation that we see in individuals across different studies and even more say anecdotally just in the field kind of what how why we see such differences between individuals Um Some negative effects of caffeine, specifically caffeine's effects on sleep and how that can affect athletic performance. Um, Its effects on cognition, what is is classed as habitual coffee consumption and whether that has any effects on how caffeine affects the body. Uh, Caffeine timing, specifically around key events. Uh, Is a response to caffeine affected by how fit you are and your training status? 
alternative sources of caffeine, such as chewing gum, uh, mouth rinsing, nasal sprays, gels, bars. And then we'll wrap it all up with kind of a conclusion of summarizing everything that has happened. But this is likely to be across two episodes. So if you're someone who uses caffeine currently for sports performance and you want to know more about it or you're not someone who uses it, maybe you don't like coffee itself and you've stayed away from caffeine, this is going to be the episode for you. So let's get into things. So you may be coming on to this episode and thinking performance enhancing effects, this sounds awfully like the performance enhancing drugs or whatever, but it's uh, it's for good reason, given various sporting bodies' historic and current view on, uh, on caffeine. Uh, the International Olympic Committee, or the IOC, as people will have heard it referred to as, continues to recognize that caffeine is frequently used by athletes because of its reported performance enhancing and ergogenic effects. Uh, Caffeine was added to the list of banned substances by the IOC in 1984 and the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, in 2000. Uh, A doping offence was defined as having urine caffeine concentrations exceeding a cutoff of 15 micrograms per milliliter and in 1985, the threshold was reduced to 12 micrograms per milliliter. The cutoff value was chosen to exclude typical amounts ingested as part of a common dietary or social coffee drinking patterns and not differentiate it from what was considered to be a clear use of caffeine for the purpose of sports performance enhancement. The IOC and WADA uh, both removed the classification of caffeine as a controlled substance in 2004, leading to a, a renewed interest in the use of caffeine by athletes. However, caffeine is still monitored by WADA, and athletes are encouraged to maintain urine caffeine concentration below the limit of 12 micrograms per milliliter of urine, which is for clarity corresponds to 10 milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight mass. You, Um, orally ingested over several hours and which is more than triple the intake reported uh, to enhance performance so clearly it's still being allowed as uh, an ergogenic aid Uh, caffeine is also categorized as a banned substance by the national uh, collegiate athletic association the ncaa Uh, if urinary caffeine is concentrated exceeds 15 micrograms per milliliter which again is greater than the monitored substance level set by WADA these are huge dosages they are so far out of the way that you don't really have to worry about getting quote-unquote popped for caffeine use Um, a comparison of caffeine concentration obtained during and in competition doping control from athletes in several sports federations pre-2004 versus post-2004, so when effectively the ban was lifted, indicated that average caffeine concentrations decreased in 2004 after removal from prohibited substances list. Reports on over 20,000 urine samples collected and analysed after official national and international competitions between 2004 and 2008 and again in 2015 using 7,500 urine samples found that an overall prevalence of caffeine use across various sports to be about 74% in the 2004 and 2008 time period and roughly 76% in 2015. The highest use of caffeine was among endurance athletes in both studies. Urinary caffeine concentration significantly increased from 2004 to 2015 in uh, in athletics, 
aquatics, rowing, boxing, judo, football and weightlifting. However, the sports with the highest urine caffeine concentration in 2015 uh, were cycling, athletics and rowing, which is kind of a telltale sign of what's to come of what sports clearly benefit the most from caffeine. Now, just for people who some of you may already take caffeine tablets or caffeine gels where it's very clearly labeled like 75 milligrams, 120 milligrams, um, 100 milligrams, 200 milligrams, whatever the dosage is, it's very clearly labeled and you're usually taking it for, in the case of a gel, the carbohydrates and the caffeine or in the case of a tablet where you're just taking it for the caffeine, you clearly know how much caffeine you are taking. However, for someone just consuming coffee or a couple of coffees before they go out on a ride or before an event, you're not really going to know. So general brewed drip method coffee, something like 240 mils, is between 65 and 120 milligrams with the nominal amount being 85 milligrams. Uh, instant is slightly less at 75. Decaf is about 3. And a 30 ml espresso is about 40 milligrams. Uh, teas unlike what people often sometimes say, saying, oh, they've got no caffeine or in them or whatever. About 60 milligrams for uh, a brewed tea. Now, this is, again, for someone who, you know, you spend a bit more time with coffee and you're worried about brew times and all these kind of things, it's going to depend heavily on how long that tea bag is sat in that mug and what kind of tea it is. Um, but even iced tea drinks can contain as much as 20, well, as much as 50 milligrams, but usually about 25 Soft drinks like Coca-Cola with a 360ml can, 40mg energy drinks, 80mg. A common one is a 250ml can of Red Bull. There's usually about 75mg of uh, caffeine. Cocoa beverages are still going to have 6. Chocolate milk beverages, 5. These are more relative to people who are just consuming random drinks thinking they're not consuming caffeine. But the big hitters, coffee and tea, you're looking at 85 to 60mg of caffeine. And now for how caffeine is kind of actually works. This is going to be a very general kind of overview. And then a lot of the stuff that I'm going to mention in this next bit will then be gone over again in much greater detail. But this kind of gives you an initial idea of where, where, where we're going with this. But caffeine is completely absorbed by the stomach and small intestine with about, within about 45 minutes of oral ingestion. Uh, but will appear in the blood within minutes, peaking somewhere between 30 and 120 minutes after ingestion. Uh, the hydrophobic properties of caffeine allow its passage through all biological membranes, including the blood-brain barrier, and the peak plasma concentration is reached within 15 to 20 minutes after oral ingestion in humans. So 95% of caffeine is then metabolized in the liver by various enzymes, while the average half-life of caffeine is generally reported to be between 4 and 6 hours. It varies between individuals uh, and even may range from 1.5 hours to 10 hours uh, in some adults. Uh, the wide range of variability in caffeine metabolism is due to several factors. Um, the rate of caffeine metabolism may be in, uh, inhibited or decreased with pregnancy or the use of hormonal contraceptives increased or induced by heavy caffeine use cigarette smoking or modified in either direction by certain uh, dietary factors and or variation in the CYP1A2 gene. Uh, over 95% of caffeine is metabolized by the CYP1A2 enzyme which is 
encoded by the CYP1A2 gene and is involved in the demethylation of caffeine into primary metabolites and, as stated before, metabolized in the liver. This gene will have a drastic effect on caffeine sensitivity, metabolism and response. So to a nerve cell in the brain, caffeine uh, looks a lot like adenosine. The way to look at this is you've got a jigsaw puzzle. Now you may have several pieces that go together, but only one is the correct one. Now caffeine is effectively one of these jigsaw puzzles that isn't adenosine. It's not the correct one to fit to this receptor. But as a result, caffeine binds to the adenosine receptor. However, caffeine doesn't slow down the cell activity as adenosine would. As a result, the cell can no longer identify adenosine because uh, caffeine is taking up all the receptors that adenosine would normally bind to. Uh, instead of slowing down because of the adenosine effect, the nerve cells speed up. Caffeine also causes the brain blood vessels to constrict uh, because it blocks adenosine's ability to dilate them. Um, caffeine's effect on the brain also induces increased uh, neuron firing. Uh, the pituitary gland senses this activity and assumes some sort of emergency must be occurring. So it releases um, epinephrine, a hormone that tells the adrenal glands to produce adrenaline. And adrenaline is the fight or flight hormone and it has a number of effects on your body including uh, your pupils uh, dilate. Uh, the airways open up. This is why people suffering from severe asthma attacks are sometimes injected with epinephrine or an EpiPen. Uh, your heart beats faster. Blood vessels on the surface constrict to slow blood flow from cuts and increase blood flow to muscles. Now, you may be thinking, eh, blood flow from cuts? Well, imagine if a lion or a tiger or, or any wild animal has cut you or another human has cut you. This is going to prevent as much blood loss as possible while still making you effectively combat ready. Um, so blood pressure rises, blood flow to the stomach slows, the liver releases sugar into the bloodstream for extra energy, muscles tighten up and ready for, get ready for action. This explains why after consuming a big cup of coffee, your hands get cold, your muscles grow tense, and you feel excited and your heart beats faster. And these are all symptoms that some people can find overwhelming if they consume too much caffeine, um, where people will feel jittery or anxious because effectively this pent-up energy and adrenaline is telling you to move and you're there like i just want to sit here and watch tv or whatever or do my other stuff so there you go caffeine that is why it's a key kind of stimulant now let's uh move on to the methods of action more specific to sport i mean although those are let's go into kind of more detail so several mechanisms have been proposed to explain the ergogenic effects of caffeine including increased myofibrillar uh, calcium availability optimized exercise metabolism and substrate availability as well as stimulating the central nervous system or the cns uh, just so people know, an ergogenic effect is just something that improves physical performance. I know this is a term thrown around a lot, and people have probably looked into what it is, just to confirm. I don't know what everyone's uh, level of understanding on this is, so try to keep it a, is sort of, keep the understanding flowing. So, one of the earlier proposed mechanisms associated with the ergogenic effects of caffeine stemmed from uh, the observed uh, adrenaline or epinephrine included in enhancing free fatty acids, FFAs, um, sorry, free fatty acid oxidation. 
uh, after caffeine ingestion and consequent uh, glycogen sparing, resulting in improved endurance performance. This substrate availability hypothesis was challenged and eventually dismissed, where after several performance studies it uh, became clear that the increased levels of free fatty acid oxidation appeared to be higher earlier in exercise when increased demand for fuel via fat oxidation would be expected. So obviously the reason this would be so kind of key and beneficial is because on our body we have an abundance even in very lean people an abundance of fat available to be used as fuel um, and in, if you can increase the your dependency on fat through caffeine ingestion and limit the amount of glycogen you're using for exercise especially in something like cycling where you need to spare that glycogen for the high intensity uh, points in a race if you can uh, keep as much of that glycogen stored which you usually uh, people usually say you have about an hour's worth 90 minutes worth of glycogen on board in a kind of a lactate threshold sort of uh, effort then this would clearly be beneficial but unfortunately disproved uh, furthermore this mechanism could not explain the ergogenic effects of caffeine in short duration high intensity exercise in which glycogen levels are not lim the limiting factor uh, glycogen is necessary for these high output um, uh, efforts but if you're doing a five second interval the reason you fatigue and can no longer continue past five seconds or ten seconds or five minutes is not because glycogen's ran out um, it's simply because you are now in an anaerobic state where you're using a lot of atp stores and that that uh, fast twitch fibers are going to fatigue and you're unable to carry on but caffeine has a positive effect on these so importantly several studies employing a variety of exercise modalities and intensities fail to show an, a decrease in a respiratory exchange ratio or the RER and or exchange in serum uh, free fatty acids which would be indicative of enhanced fat metabolism during exercise when only water was ingested ingestion of lower doses of caffeine one to three milligrams per kilogram of body mass which do not result in significant physiological responses i.e changes in blood lactate and glucose also appear to deliver measurable ergogenic effects offering strong support for the central nervous system as the origin of reported improvements as a result the focus has shifted to the action of caffeine during exercise within the central and peripheral nervous system, which could alter the rate of uh, perceived exertion, or RPE as most people know as, muscle pain, and possibly the ability of skeletal muscle to generate force. Uh, caffeine does appear to have some direct effects on muscle, uh, which may contribute to its ergogenic effects. Most likely pathway that caffeine may be benefit uh, muscle contraction is through the calcium ion CA2 plus metabolism, um, sorry, metabolization, which facilitates force production by each motor unit. Uh, fatigue caused by the gradual reduction in CA2 plus releases may be attenuated after caffeine ingestion. Caffeine appears to employ its effects at various locations in the body, but the most robust evidence suggests that the main target is the central nervous system, which is widely accepted as the primary mechanism by which caffeine alters mental and physical performance. So caffeine is believed to exert its effects on the central nervous system via f uh, effectively working against adenosine receptors, leading to an increase in neurotransmitters release. 
uh, motor unit firing rates and pain suppression. Now for those who care, there are four distinct adenosine receptors, A1, A2A, um, A2B and uh, A3 that have been uh, cloned and characterized in several species. Uh, these subtypes, A1 and A2A, which are highly concentrated in the brain, appear to be the main targets of caffeine. Uh, adenosine is involved in uh, numerous processes and pathways, playing a crucial role as a homeostatic regulator and neuromodulator in the nervous system. The major known effects of adenosine are to decrease the concentration of many central nervous system neurotransmitters, including uh, serotonin, dopamine, acetylcholine, uh, neuroepinephrine and glutamate. Caffeine, which has a similar uh, molecular structure to adenosine, uh, so a bit like a jigsaw, it's able to slot in. You may in a jigsaw say have two pieces that will go together, but only one of the pieces is the correct piece to go into that slot. Now a caf caffeine is effectively that incorrect piece that has the correct shape. Um, it is able to slot into where adenosine will go and now adenosine is no longer able to occupy that space in the receptor. This results in positive effects on mood, vigilance, focus and alertness but uh, in most but not all individuals which we'll kind of go into in more detail as we go further along. So researchers have also characterized aspects of the adenosine A2A receptor function related to cognitive processes and motivation. In particular, several studies have focused on the functional significance of adenosine A2A receptors uh, and the interactions between adenosine and dopamine receptors in, re uh, in the relation to aspects of behavioral activation and effort related processes. Uh, the serotonin receptor 2A uh, ha, has also been shown to moderate dopamine release through mechanisms involved in the regulation of either dopamine synthesis or dopaminergetic neuron firing rate. A possible mechanism for caffeine's ergogenic effects may involve variability in the 5-HTR2A receptor activity, which may be modulated dopamine releases and consequently impact alertness, pain, motivation and effort. So if you, see, you can see caffeine is incredibly complex in the way that it's going about these effects that we all see of how we're stimulated and seem to have uh, improved uh, pain tolerance and reduced rate of fatigue. So muscle pain has been shown to negatively affect motor unit recruitment and skeletal muscle force generation proportional to the subjective score for pain intensity. This is kind of an easy one to relate to if you've ever done really anything. If you've ever hurt your foot while running or you've ever uh, hurt your hand in some way. And when you hurt your foot and suddenly you realize you're just walking weird or you just you try run and you just you can't, physically cannot overcome the brain's ability to just shut off the ability to use it in a way that is detrimental to itself and you'll try run and you'll just you'll limp you will simply limp and that is an example of where the brain is going no nope, that is going to damage that further i am not allowing you to do that and it appears that caffeine in some way is able to mask that a bit like a painkiller would and it makes it so the brain is no longer receiving that feedback from the injured muscle or foot or whatever it is and you are able to continue to push through that uh, so it's kind of releasing the safety mechanism so the attenuation of pain during exercise as a result of caffeine supplementation may also result in a decrease in RPE, your rate of perceived exertion, 
during exercise. So two studies have reported that improvements in performance were accompanied by a decrease in pain perception as well as a decrease in RPE under caffeine conditions. But it is unclear which factor may have contributed to the ergogenic effect. Acute caffeine ingestion has been shown to alter RPE where efforts may be greater under caffeine conditions, yet is not perceived as such. A meta-analysis identified 21 studies using mostly healthy uh, male subjects uh, between the ages of 20 and 35 and showed that a 5.6% reduction in RPE during exercise following caffeine ingestion. The average improvement in performance was 11% um, and across all exercise modalities. As, as always, the results will vary from study to study and therefore I tend to take them as not 100% given. Like if I'm going to consume caffeine, I will see a 10% improvement in my physical performance. More provides you a guide as to where to take your training and how much caffeine and whether it's something you if you're not a coffee drinker and you're someone who maybe has a bit of a fear of caffeine itself can sort of bring yourself to go hmm, there are some clear benefits let's let's kind of dive into them and let's take them into my training um, in the last decade or so um, un our understanding of the central nervous system fatigue has improved Historically, it was well documented that physiological factors can affect exercise performance and that dysfunction at any step in the uh, continuum from the brain to the peripheral uh, contractile machinery will result in a muscular fatigue. The role of the central nervous system in its motor drive effect was shown by Davis et al, who examined the effect of caffeine injection directly into the brains of rats on their ability to run to exhaustion on a treadmill. Uh, in this control study, rats were injected with either placebo, caffeine or something called NECA, which is an adenosine receptor agonist. This means that this compound, although it wasn't adenosine itself, it performs the exact same function. So it, unlike caffeine who binds to the receptor and has a completely different outcome, this agonist effectively bound to it but also performed the exact same function. Um, so, sorry, and then also a caffeine uh, and NECA, so the agonist together. So you've got a placebo, you've got caffeine, and you, you've got, sorry, placebo, caffeine, the agonist on its own, and then caffeine and the agonist together. So rats ran 80 minutes in the placebo trial, 120 minutes in the caffeine trial, and only 25% with the NECA, so the... Uh, uh, the adenosine agonist. Uh, when caffeine and NECA were given together, the effects appeared to cancel each other out and the runtime was very similar to that of the placebo group. Uh, when the study was repeated with injections into the body cavity instead of the brain, there was no effect on run performance. The authors concluded that caffeine increases running time by delaying fatigue through the central nervous system effects. In part by blocking adenosine receptors, caffeine also appears to enhance cognitive performance more in fatigued than well-rested subjects. This phenomenon is also apparent in exercise performance, but in the field and in the lab, experiments also show the same thing. So... Simply, caffeine's kind of like a safety removal switch. It kind of goes, uh, we've got all these kind of things that we've cleverly put in place to limit the amount of damage that can happen to us. And then caffeine comes along and goes, meh, I don't think any of those are worth it. Uh, there must be something else that would prevent them from damaging themselves. So it kind of just patches them up and stops people from, um, 
um, you know, using them. Hence why it looks like when you're well rested, caffeine has less of an effect because effectively, even though you're patching up all these safety mechanisms, they're not really firing. They're, they're like, look, we've got plenty of energy. So yes, when you you then take it to the extreme and do a high intensity, real short burst thing, you still see the performance enhancements because the same thing's effectively happening. Whereas on a 20 minute or 30 minute or 40 minute interval, the first 10 minutes, there may not be much difference because of the fact that the body hasn't fatigued yet and it's not trying to shut things down. As stated earlier, with these benefits of caffeine being present, it's clear why it would be useful in endurance sport. Um, for example, the caffeine concentration in over 20,000 urine samples obtained uh, for doping control from 2004 to 2008 was measured after official national and international competitions. The investigations concluded that roughly 74% of elite athletes used caffeine as an ergogenic aid prior to or during a sporting event, where endurance sports are the disciplines showing the highest urine caffeine excretion and therefore prevalence after competition. So that's just a recap of something I've already said uh, to prove that clearly is widespread the use of caffeine within uh, sport and more particularly endurance sport. So less than a 1% change in average speed is enough to affect medal rankings in the Olympic endurance events lasting 45 seconds to 8 minutes. This is why uh, super shoes in track running and road running have become such a big deal and I plan to make an episode kind of going over what the proposed benefits are, which shoes are best in theory, and so on and so forth. But for now, keeping on track with caffeine. Uh, in other events, such as men's individual road race, the difference between the top three medalists can be as little as 0.01%. Uh, at the end of the highest levels of sport, com- competitors will be near their genetic potential, unlike people in the general public. Uh, They do not have much more room to grow and the execution and supplements become key in improving by that narrow percentage. Actually, to an average athlete, 1%, although still important, you could pick that 1% up by just training more or executing better or just having a longer training history. Like It's unlikely that you've got 5-10 years of structured... um, volume like reasonable volume training for that period of time whereas an elite athlete has likely been following some kind of structure with a reasonable amount of volume for quite a few years and they are pushing up to their genetic potential meaning that anything like caffeine that is legal is clearly something that needs to be implemented and optimized on race day um, so caffeine has consistently been shown to improve endurance by 2 to 4% across many studies using a 3 to 6 milligram uh, per kilogram of body weight uh, dosage. As a result, caffeine is one of the most prominent ergogenic aids and is used by athletes in a wide variety of sports and activities involving aerobic endurance. And anyone who's been around really triathlon running and cycling will have consumed caffeine gels more than likely because of this exact benefit. Endurance sports are not the only sports that can see large benefits from caffeine consumptions. Um, Any sport that involves any form of muscular endurance, strength and power will see a benefit from this. Uh, Generally, the primary sports related goal of strength and power orientated resistance training programs is to move 
the force velocity curve to the right, indicating an ability for an athlete to lift greater loads at higher velocities. Studies generally report that caffeine ingestion provides ergogenic effects of moderate to large magnitudes, with similar effects noted for both mean and peak velocity and in the upper and lower body exercises as well. As strength and power development through resistance exercises is a significant component of conditioning programs for competitive sports of all kinds, caffeine can be a useful tool in competition and in training. The most frequently consumed dose of caffeine in studies using strength tasks with trained or untrained individuals usually ranges from 3 to 6 milligrams per kilogram of body mass. Again, this seems to be kind of the golden range that is used and advocated for as a performance enhancing effect. So ingestion in the form of pills or capsules uh, 30 to 90 minutes before exercise as is the case often in training before a session in the gym or in endurance training. Uh, for muscular endurance studies um, have shown improvements of up to 7% yet others show nothing. The same goes for strength training where some studies have observed improvements of up to 7% and others show no change at all. I think this comes down primarily to the cohort of individuals that are brought in um, and how the strength metrics are measured. I think often as we've seen is that there is just so much variety in how people respond um, to caffeine that, again, it's just something that you have to experiment with yourself in different dosages and see whether you get the expect scene. One thing we will get onto a bit more later is the different methods of using caffeine. I think when, obviously, if you're using something like 100 milligrams, it's kind of such a small dosage that it doesn't really matter how you're consuming it, whether it's through coffee itself um, whether it's through a tablet a pill a uh, powder whatever i would say once you start getting up to the 300 400 500 600 700 800 milligrams when you're getting onto really high dosages where first of all that can become an element of you could do yourself some harm to some extent or cause gastric uh, problems if the margins become narrower and narrower where you're getting close to that your personal limit staying away from powders or anything that's like sort of volumetric you want tablets and chewing gums and things that are a single serve prescribed amount so that if you want 300 milligrams you know that is three tablets rather than trying to guess 300 milligrams of powder and in things like pre-workout shakes and you may have other ingredients in there that you don't know what the recommended dosage is. So once you start getting to those high amounts, sure, if you're just having a scoop of pre-workout, pre-workout, and that's fine. But if you're trying to hit other specific numbers um, that are multiples of that, then it's best to kind of stick to a controlled um, substance like, like, a, like, like a tablet. Now, with all this talk of variation, you're probably wondering at this point, what, why, what, what causes this variation? We have already kind of glazed over it, but for more detail, genetic variations affect the way we absorb, metabolize, and utilize nutrients in general. Uh, in the field of nutriogenics, uh, caffeine is m the most widely researched com compound, uh, with several randomized controlled trials investigating the modifying effects of genetic variation on exercise performance. 
Um, a large study examined the effects of caffeine and CYP1A2 uh, genotype on a 10-kilometer cycling time trial performance in competitive male athletes, uh, both endurance and power sports. After ingestion of a placebo and caffeine doses of 2 milligram low dose, 4 milligram moderate dose per kilogram of body mass. Uh, there was a 3% improvement in cycling time with the moderate dose in all subjects, which is consistent with previous studies using similar dosages. Uh, however, there was a significant caffeine gene interaction improvement. Sorry, there. However, there was a significant caffeine gene interaction. Improvements in performance uh, were seen at both caffeine doses, but only in those with the AA genotype who are fast metabolizers of caffeine. In that group, a 6.8% improvement in cycling time was observed at 4 mg per kilogram, which is greater than the 2-4% mean improvement seen in several other studies using cycling time trials and similar dosages. Again, showing just how vast the differences in performance improvements can be depending on who you are and what your genotype is. Among those with the CC genotype, i.e. slow metabolizers, a 4 mg per kilogram caffeine impaired performance by 13.7%, where no difference was observed between the placebo and 2 mg uh, per kilogram of caffeine. In those with the AC genotype, there was a no, no effect of either dose. The findings are consistent with previous studies that observed a caffeine gene interaction indicating improved time trial cycling performance following a caffeine consumption only in those with AA genotypes. The best thing you can do with this information, to be honest, is to experiment with yourself and see what sort of dosages you can get away with in training and whether or not you notice any large differences. A good way of doing this is planning a breakthrough sessions on a weekend morning so that you can load up on caffeine without affecting sleep. With that in mind, this highlights the particular issue with caffeine, especially in team sports practice. Amateurs will often practice late in the evening, meaning that taking caffeine to improve performance during training unfortunately will affect their sleep. And with that, you can, I guess, target really key sessions where you know either it's going to be extremely hard and extremely physical or there is going to be a lot of cognitive load that is going on that you need to pick up uh, new drills maybe in the pre-season and so on and ideally that hard session is as far away from your game weekend so if you do impair sleep you have time to reset all that and catch back up but again it highlights why um, it may not be used as much in those kind of settings now this moves us nicely on to the effects of caffeine on sleep. Uh, the, caffeine, the effects of caffeine on sleep are widely studied. Sleep is an essential component of physical and psychological recovery from and preparation for high intensity training in athletes and learning of new skills. Chronic mild to moderate sleep deprivation in athletes has in some cases been attributed to caffeine intake and may result in negative or altered impacts on glucose metabolism, um, neuroendocrine function, appetite, food intake and protein synthesis, as well as attention, learning and memory. These factors can all influence an athlete's nutritional, metabolic and endocrine status negatively and hence potentially affect energy levels, uh, muscular repair, immunity, body composition, memory and learning and result in a diminished athletic performance, of course. Now, for people in endurance sports, that are not particularly technical learning may be a bit of an afterthought. 
But in team sports where new drills, skills and set plays are being learnt all the time, learning is a critical part of a professional athlete's game and should not be shortchanged. Uh, objective sleep measures using actigraphy or carried out in a laboratory conditions with EEG have shown that caffeine negatively impacts several aspects of sleep quality such as sleep latency, this is the time it takes you to fall asleep, uh, WASO which is wake time after sleep onset, uh, sleep efficiency and duration. Uh, studies in athletes have also shown adverse effects on sleep quality and markers for exercise recovery after a variety of doses of caffeine ingestion. Um, although caffeine is associated with sleep disturbances, caffeine has also been shown to improve vigilance and reaction time and improve physical performance after sleep deprivation. This may be beneficial for athletes who are traveling or involved in multi-day sporting events and must perform at their highest level under sleep-deprived conditions. Think of an ultra-marathon or an ultra-cycling event, or simply someone who's jet-lagged because they've had to fly halfway around the world for an event. In particular, things like cycling where the calendar can be pretty packed. In Olympic years, for example, you may get a very short break between your uh, race calendar in the world tour and then your olympic uh, road race or time trial and then have to fly back to do further racing and caffeine during this jet lagged period could be well can be and is um, very useful even though caffeine ingestion may hinder sleep quality the time of day at which caffeine is ingested will likely determine the incidence of these negative effects. For example, in one study that included a sample size of 13 participants, ingestion of caffeine in the morning hours negatively affected sleep only in one participant, likely someone who had a half-life of caffeine was exceptionally long or with a high sensitivity to caffeine. However, ingestion of caffeine in the late afternoon, 6 o'clock in this case, resulted in insomnia effects among 6 participants, so just under 50%. These results are likely explained by the half-life of caffeine, which is generally around 4 to 6 hours, even though it varies between individuals quite greatly. Effectively, if you're having, say, 120 milligrams of caffeine through a coffee first thing in the morning, well, you may have 18 16 hours before you have to go to bed so there's plenty of time for that caffeine to decay whereas if you have it at six you may only have four hours until you go to bed at which point if you're consuming 120 milligrams you've still got six well around 60 milligrams of caffeine in your system and say the threshold for you to have insomnia is 50 milligrams which again would vary between individuals but say is 50 milligrams then you are going to suffer from these uh, negative effects and impacts on your sleep quality uh, there's an element of this for me that says if you have late training sessions maybe just keep caffeine for key sessions or load it earlier in the day so there is some benefit but not enough that carries over into sleep or simply avoid it at all costs you have to come to the conclusion of which is key if maybe you want to say you're playing football or rugby for example in your trainings at 7 p.m then maybe it just comes down to you do not use caffeine for any training sessions and then you start using caffeine only on match day where you clearly have enough time in the day for the caffeine to drop off and not suffer the consequences of poor sleep as a result of the caffeine that is still in your system 
And with that, this will be the end of part one of the performance enhancing effects on caffeine. Uh, in the next episode, I will be going over the effects on cognition, um, defining habitual caffeine consumption, um, the effects of caffeine timing, when's best around workouts, depending on different types of caffeine ingestion. Um, is your response to caffeine affected by your training status and how fit you are? Um, the best ways to take caffeine and alternative sources um, such as chewing gum, mouth rinsing, nasal sprays, gels, bars. And then we'll have a wrap up kind of conclusion as to everything covered in these two episodes in a sort of overhead bit of detail and then close it out. And hopefully from that you will know now more accurately how to go about dosing yourself, when to have it and when not to have caffeine. Uh, thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want more content like this, there are plenty of other previous episodes to check out. But before you do, why not follow the podcast and leave it a rating wherever you get your podcast from. Or even better, share it with a friend. For any comments, feedback, or if you would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, I can be contacted at the vo 2 lounge at gmail.com. And with that, I will see you in the next one.